Ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome you back to the Sling the Biscuit podcast, the new Sling the Biscuit podcast. This is going to be episode 21 of the podcast. Uh, my friend, my amazing co-host, Mr. Dave Wheeler, is off on holidays this week. He's probably spending some lovely time with his wife, Candace Ray. In, to pinch hit for him, is my teammate, the guy that I sit beside in the locker room, the most games played in the Fed Zeno, the grizzled vet, fellow Winnipegger, Mr. Ian White. How are you? I'm good, buddy. It's good to finally get you on the podcast. I think that I've never... In my entire almost two years of podcasting, I had somebody that has been so requested to come on the show and to share a conversation with before you. I'm honored. Yeah, no, it's always fun doing stuff like this. I think the best story of Whitey that, that I have to kind of kickstart this conversation off is I think about maybe like a month ago, we're in Binghamton and you know we just traveled 11 hours. Coach says you got 15 minutes to get on the ice. We get on the ice, we have our morning skate, just snap it around real quick, 30 minutes in and out. And we're done practice, and Whitey likes to play rebound. So if you don't know what a rebound is, obviously, one guy shoots, we play to 10, and you play the rebound until it crosses the goal line or the puck goes in. Simple as that. And one of our coaches comes on the ice and says, we're done. You got five minutes to be in, and every minute late you are for, like, team lunch, it's a $5 fine. Coach walks away, and Whitey says, boys, don't worry about the fines. Let's just play it out. Let's see how it goes. The most legendary power movie pulls his helmet off. And uh, that is Ian White, I think, best summed up. The way, well, the way I see it, though, is that I don't see uh, him as a coach. I see him as a player, <laughs> and he's trying to tell us what to do. Hey, we want to stay out there, get a little bit extra. I'm not going to have a teammate come tell me to get off the ice at a penalty of paying some money. So you want to stay out there and take a little extra, shoot the biscuit around. That's what you got to do. Sling the biscuit around. <laughs> there you go, sling the biscuit. I think the best thing, too, is... The uh, like when when we're going to play the rebound game, every uh, every single team has player coaches. Obviously, you know, you know, playing in Columbus, that there's you know, four player coaches. Every team has player coaches, and you have more uh, rank than anybody else in the league. And you just say, "We're not going to pay these fines. We're going to play rebound." Thanks for asking, though. Have a good day. We'll see you in 15 minutes. It is it is one of the nice things though about uh, about hockey is just you, when you put in the years, you put in the time. You, you get the respect. There is a hierarchy, obviously. And, and that's the one thing I found. It doesn't matter what level you're playing at, where in the world you're playing at. If guys have put in the time before you, they, they get, you know, whatever, whatever they want. And if you have, sometimes you've got young guys, well, you always actually have young guys coming in who, who are, are pretty green around the edges and they think they can do whatever they want and they have to get put in their place a little bit. Um, even just when I when I came back to playing last year in Columbus, we have uh, I was living in a house similar situation as this. Probably five of us in there, and I just turned 38. We've got 20, 21 year old kids in there walking around like they own the place, and and it doesn't matter if it's the the federal league or the NHL. But you know, sometimes these guys need need some life lessons actually on on. Just, just respecting elders or people who've come before them, and they need some reminders. Um, this, this house is is a little bit, a little bit different than than what I first experienced down in, in Columbus. I'd sit the sit these guys down around the table multiple times and and inform them on how to load the dishwasher, you know, how to flush the toilets. I actually had to do a, a full plumb job of the the kitchen sink. I think it was three weeks in there because guys don't scrape their their food off the plates and they just shove everything down the drain we had a we actually had a full flood in the house that was going through through the upstairs all into the the garage and stuff in this house no in columbus 
and, and I was just shocked. When I first walked in, I was just shocked at how I, I'm not that tidy of a person. But it, it was it's it's some some people live pretty filthy and, and you know, we're all adults here and guys guys need some life skills, you know. Maybe they've never washed dishes in their life, maybe they've never, you know, had to share a toilet with someone else, but just, just some little respect things and, and it's nice that being you know, having some some veteran status that, that kids look up to you and they actually listen to you and, and you know, take take your wisdom and, and your advice for the most part. Sometimes they need a little bit of prodding, but I think the best two examples just probably happened in the last 15 minutes before we, we started recording. Uh, so obviously we're in one of the team living houses. We have two houses on the team and we have five guys living here and obviously to record the podcast we need good audio. And I said to Whitey, I said, we got to ask the guys to be you know, respectful, maybe be a little bit more quieter. I walk into one of the rooms, hey, we're doing a podcast. Do you mind just being quiet? And he's like, shut up, Trav. And I come back and I says, hey, Whitey, do you mind taking care of it? Hey, we're doing a podcast. Yeah, no problem, Mr. White. No problem. No problem at all. Same podcast he was asking for. Same result. And uh, even like right before we started recording, Whitey says, can we change the cameras around? I, I want my good side. And I said, yes, Mr. White. We'll switch the cameras around. And here we are. I was supposed to sit in that chair. And he was supposed to sit in this chair. But when you have rank and you have veteran status, that's how things go, even on uh, somebody else's podcast. <laughs> well, one, and one other thing I had to do, too. I'll even here, I, I have to put up post-it notes sometimes. And in Columbus, there was a lot more of them um, above the sink. I actually had a, a, a sheet of like a notepad, a sheet of paper taped up there, and it was titled "How to Not Be a Challenge." And uh, this was after the plumbing incident because I had to like actually like take out all the pipes out, everything, and just like number one is like how to load a dishwasher. Number two is how to scrape your plate off and rinse your plate, and then put it in the dishwasher um and even something we had guys they, they wouldn't like legitimately wouldn't even close the fridge door they don't take some out of the freezer leave the freezer door wide open um and, and it was just i mean it was shocking to me that people live like that but maybe they've never been taught that you have to close the freezer after maybe I, i'll give them that that rope and then so above the i'll send you a picture after but yeah it's how to not be a challenge and then that was week one week two on the bottom was like how to <laughs> how to lift the toilet seat and how to flush that was, that was week two so one week at a time we work on something and see how we can progress here it's just the only thing that's the problem is the thermostat so far <laughs> kind of like the, the episode of family guy where peter is like any father knows when you've touched the thermostat and he touches the thermostat and like five dads run on the front hey is my son here you guys touch the thermostat well I, my room's right there so right outside the the, where the thermostat is and I just hear little rabbit feet always hopping up there and tick, 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 up tick, 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 down sometimes they come in here guys have it set at like 78 sometimes it's set at 62 <laughs> it's like let's just leave it where I set it and maybe put a sweater on if you're cold <laughs> it's the captain's orders when, one thing that I did want to talk about was so when when you came into the team We'd gone through, like, usually like, every Monday or Tuesday, we make cuts and you know, guys get released or guys get picked up. And it's usually along that in the Fedzino. And for about the two to three weeks before you came in, every week, the guy who sat beside me was sent home. So I'd have two stalls and then I had three stalls. There was one point where I had five stalls in the corner to myself. And then you came in. And I remember somebody mentioned, yeah, we're, we're picking up Ian White. He's going to be coming in on you know, Monday or Tuesday. And I was really excited about the idea of, you know, you're from Winnipeg, kind of, just outside of Winnipeg. I'm from Winnipeg. We're both cancers. We're both born in June. Obviously, I'm 96. You're I'm 84. I'm Gemini, but anyway. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I messed that up. I didn't fact check that. <laughs> Until I did my research. But anyway, 
I was really excited about the idea of you coming down because I thought we'd have a lot in common. And I've been curious to, to pick your brain because I remember a year ago when I was in Sweden hearing about, you know, Ian White signs and the Fed Zeno. I thought I'm, I'm curious why and, you know, getting to know you over the last month, month and a bit. It's been really, really fun for me personally. I don't, I don't know if it's been pleasurable for you, but I've enjoyed it. Getting to pick your brain and kind of, you know, seeing your view on, on hockey and, and all the other things we've talked about. And I think the best story that you told me was your first NHL contract getting your signing bonus with Toronto. You want to maybe tell that story? Yeah, well, I I was 18. I had been uh, I played t- two years in in Swift Current in the Western Hockey League and got drafted by Toronto as a sixth round pick. And I played in in the World Juniors as a, an 18 year old that year. And Toronto had five guys uh, who were drafted who played in the World Juniors. The the other four of them were were 19 year olds, so it was their year their signing year. And after the the tournament. Between you know January and maybe April, I guess those those four other guys who were 19 year olds signed contracts, and I was still I still had another well another couple years of junior, but I was only 18, so usually you don't sign when you're 18. And so after Swift Current, after the season was over, I I uh, migrated back to to Steinbach, and I was working at at Corey Oaks Golf Course as a maintenance man, cutting grass and fixing greens and all that stuff. And I was just riding a John Deere mower. My phone rings, and it was my my agent. And he said, he said, "Hey, I got two things for, you, for two things to talk about. Number one, he's like, how's the season training going?' <laughs> and it was it was May, and I don't train much to begin with, but I certainly wasn't training in May. And so I was, well, it's whatever. I'm working. And he's like, number two, he's like, Toronto wants to sign you. I was like. Why the heck are we talking about training? <laughs> like that should be number one. And I didn't really know. I mean, I knew what contracts were, but I didn't really know like the ins and outs of what happens when you sign a contract. And anyway, so I said, well, what, you know, what does that entail? And, and he said, uh, so your your first deal, your entry level deal is always a three year contract. Um, if if you play in the NHL. The my contract was five hundred thousand for the first year, five hundred fifty for the second year, and then uh, six hundred for the third. And they said, and you get they're offering you a, a half a million dollar signing bonus. And so I just the wheels were spinning a little bit, and I so I said, does that mean if I say yes right now that I get half a million dollars? And he's like, yeah. And so I'm like, all right. So I <laughs> I ended up signing a deal. And when you're working a golf course maintenance, every two weeks, like especially at the start of the summer, every two weeks you start earlier, half an hour earlier, half an hour earlier. So by that time, I think we're we're starting at six, so getting up pretty early. And now that I knew that I was coming into some some sizable money, I just went straight to my my boss. I said, "Man, I'm <laughs> I'm giving you my tractor keys. I'm done." So yeah, I got. Uh, you get any pushback from that? No, oh no, I mean, who wouldn't understand that, right? <laughs> I think I was maybe making, you know, 12 or 13 bucks an hour, maybe. I don't even know if it was that much, but I'm going to say 12 or 13 bucks an hour um, versus my, my the first check I got. Uh, right around my birthday is June 4th, and my first check came in, like, right around that time, and it was, I think it was about $110,000 American. That was when our dollar was, like, at 67 cents, so... We can't. There's no part-time job that's going to match that. So enjoy my summer instead. Pretty sizable amount of money. Yeah, life-changing, really. 
One of the one of the guys that we, we didn't tell the, we were doing a podcast was uh, Brad Reader coming in here from the podcast. Hey, what's up, dog? How are you, man? Pretty good. How are you? I'm good. We're just doing the podcast right now. You want to come make a little cameo? I was going to go to the gas station real quick. Okay. We'll see you in a bit. We'll see you back in <laughs> Sorry, 10. Sorry, man. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I, I was curious. What did you do with the first bit of that money that you got? Let's take a quick break. Is real music dying? What even is real music, and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician, and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird, and the deep questions, and we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer, or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in, and go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. So the first check, I went, I walked uh, Steinbach's known as the Automobile City, and I'd always wanted uh, an Escalade, so they didn't carry that many, or they didn't, they've never actually, Steinbach's, they never had an Escalade for sale there, and they had a, a white Escalade, which is a, was my dream car at the time, they happened to have one, so I went straight to the dealership and bought, a, bought an Escalade and proceeded to blow probably about twenty thousand dollars into the interior i put massive speakers tvs everywhere i even had a a playstation a playstation 2 i put in and i had like a pop-out tv in the dash and i had uh so i could i literally drive my truck and play video games at the same time it was actually it was a it was a very nice vehicle that's awesome it was nice to have it when you know you're 18 ripping around i i just I was in I just finished high school. I was in high school, just finishing high school, and then I had another another year of junior left too. So you're you're going back to junior and hanging out with all your buddies, uh, and just just it, life's a little bit different when you you know you're instead of in junior. I think we were, you get paid probably 100 150 bucks every two weeks or something, and now all of a sudden you've got a little bit of money to be able to live a little bit differently and take care of the boys, and it was lots of fun. You got the nicest car in the parking lot by far. Oh, yeah. In Swift Current. Yeah. Speaking of taking care of the boys, one thing you got to do is pick up a pair of sheath underwear from the team at Sheath, which is the presenting sponsor for this podcast, and I'll tell you why. So Sheath underwear is cutting edge. They've introduced the brand new dual pouch. It is a segregated compartment that you put your dick and your balls into so your ball bag isn't sticking to the side of your legs. So when you, you get that brand new Escalade in uh, 2002, it might have been, 2003, and the AC doesn't work because you blew a gasket, you get a pair of sheath underwear so it's not sticking to the side of your leg. And the best part about that on top of that is that sheath uses these amazing cooling bamboo mesh materials. So it's comfortable, it's cooling, your manly parts go into two separate compartments so they physically cannot touch, they cannot stick to the side of your legs, and it's game-changing. I promise you, you will not regret it. You can go to the link in the video description on the YouTube podcast, sheathunwear.com, and use the code BISCUIT69, B-I-Z-K-I-T, 69, if you're on the Apple or the Spotify version, you're in the car, you're going to, have to pull over first, obviously, and safe when do safe to do so. And uh, same thing, sheath underwear in the podcast notes for code biscuit sixty nine, which will get you twenty percent off the best underwear money can buy. I bet you didn't have a pair of sheath underwear when you got the Escalade, though. Probably could have used a pair. <laughs> the air conditioning worked pretty good on it, but <laughs> <laughs> that's funny, man. <laughs> one place that well, one place that I was thinking that uh, 
<laughs> you, you actually really could have used a pair of sheath on West Pally playing in, in Toronto for the, the amount of time that you were in there. I know you spent, <laughs> sorry, I know you spent uh, about five seasons in Toronto. What, what do you think the best and the worst thing about playing in Toronto was? You know, I, there was, I, I liked everything about it, really. Um, I was 20, so I moved to Toronto, I guess, 20, 20, like the first year pro was in St. John's. There was no NHL that year. I think it was 2004, 2005. And then Toronto's farm team moved to Toronto too. So no matter what, I was going to be living in Toronto. And, you know, from, I grew up in a small town at Steinbach when I grew up there, I think was maybe like eight, nine, 10,000 people. Then I moved to Swift Current which is by far the smallest market in, in the, the Canadian Hockey League. There was maybe 16,000 people there. Um, so we go from, from you know, one small town to another small town. Then I moved to St. John's for is maybe six months for the season, a little bit bigger, um, probably about 200,000. Then all of a sudden you move to Toronto, you know, a massive city. Uh, it's quite an adjustment uh, in terms of, of, you know, what was good and bad about playing there. It, you know, I mean, I guess the... Like they they have probably the best support of any hockey team in the world. Uh, anywhere we we would go play, there would be a couple thousand fans, Toronto fans. Whether you're in Florida or Arizona or even LA, anywhere you go, there's there's Maple Leaf fans, and you know support anywhere. Um, the 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 atmosphere there was was great. There's just so there's so much so much support from from the city I mean there's along with that comes pressure and we the team you know we were always my first year I think we, we missed playoffs by it was like it was a one point but it was kind of like half a point there was a I think it was New Jersey and the Islanders so we were tied for the last playoff spot and then that was our last game was on Saturday then Sunday the last game in the league was against uh, like I said Jersey and Islanders and I think uh I think Jersey had to, one of the teams had to win outright for us to, to be in playoffs. And if the other team won, we were, were knocked out. And we ended up, the game ended up going to a shootout. <laughs> and so we, we, we missed by a point. And then the next year was very close too. We were right in it till I think we went on like, like a 10 or, we went on a crazy winning streak, like won 10 or 12 of the last 14 games, something like that, to try to get in, didn't, didn't get in. And if you, I mean, success is, is usually measured in, in, I mean, it used to be Stanley Cups, but now it's, you know, just getting to playoffs is, is very difficult. And if you don't make playoffs, especially in Toronto, there's there's a lot of pressure. But it, to me, pressure is, is what, what brings the best out in people. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was young. It was a big adjustment in my life. It was, I have great memories there. The first couple of years that I played there, we had a lot of um, really uh, like legends of the game, if you will. You know, Matt Sundin was was the captain. He was he was one of the well. He was up until he was the best captain I played for. I would say uh, just a super nice guy. I was 21, walking in the dressing room, and you're just kind of, I mean, the way I was uh, brought up through hockey is is the kind of hierarchy, <laughs> whatever the word is. But but these guys who've got the veterans, like you just stay out of their way. You don't bug them, you know. You don't the older guys, like you don't talk to them. You just they let them do their thing. And Mass and Dean go out of his way to 
to say, hey, you know, this is I'm Matt. Introduce yourself. So make you feel home. And, and I was just some some 21 year old nobody, right? But he was a super nice guy. Uh, we had we had so many so many. The league was a lot older in those in those days. Um, but we had we had lots of great older guys. It was it was a lot of fun to play. The only thing, the only downfall I would say, or the if, if anything was negative, is I prefer to to be very private. I like living out in, in the woods, quite frankly, away from all the hustle and bustle. And when you're uh, a Maple Leaf, it's you can't really go out in public without people recognizing you. Um, so you, you want to go out for a dinner with your family or with anybody. You know, you've got everywhere you go, people recognize you. So you don't really have privacy. Uh, I would say that would be the only downfall. I mean, but it's 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 kind of neat too. I mean, some people thrive off it. They they love people coming up and asking for autographs. I don't mind. I don't have a problem at all. I I feel honored to do it. But sometimes you just want to go out and and not be known. So Toronto is uh, was a tough market for that. Are there any ones that stand out in your mind with like fans coming out to bother you in, in public, whether it be eating dinner or asking for an autograph or recognizing you? Uh, probably the the most shocking I found was actually when I when I got traded to Calgary. Um, there was four of us, so I think you want might you probably want to talk about that trade anyway. But so we got it was a I think it was a Sunday, and I had talked to Brian Burke was the the manager of Toronto at the time. And I talked because they were so they brought him in and they were trying to overhaul the team. And I had talked to him. I had, I had had a couple good years there, and I had talked to him a week or two prior, and just because he was getting rid of just trading guys, getting rid of guys, and I just kind of had a conversation with him like, "You plans on trading me?" He's like, "No, I'll never trade you." I'm like, "Okay, cool." And uh, so it was. It was. I'm pretty sure it was a Saturday. That's we always would play hockey night can on on or sort of Sunday. We'd always play hockey night in Canada on Saturdays, and so Sunday was a day off. So I'm sitting in, in my condo and, and I was eating breakfast, watching some TV, and the phone rings and said Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, and I'm like, oh, it's, it's my day off, man. Don't bug me. So I didn't answer it, and they called back. So I'm like, oh, I better take this. So I picked it up, and it was Brian Burke. He's like, hey, just so you know, he's like, uh, traded you to Calgary for for Dion Phaneuf. And so obviously you're kind of shocked, and and then he said he's like, well, you know, but don't worry, it's like a couple of your, or he's like, I don't know exactly how I worded it, but something to the extent that you know your your buddy's going with you. So there was a there was a group of us in Toronto, about four of us. Well, the guys that got traded, we were kind of we were the guys who had been in Toronto for the the longest, and we were we were all really good buddies. And we like to to have fun, and and we probably got a little bit of a reputation for that. And so, after I hang up, I call my 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 best buddy on the team, Matt Stage, and I said, "Hey, man, I'm like, did you get a phone call?" He's like, "No." I'm like, "Oh." I'm like, "Well, I just got dealt." I'm like, "I'm kind of thinking you're coming with me." And while I was on the phone with him. Uh, Burke, Burke called him and, and told him he was in, in the package too. So we, we all, him, Jamal Mares, and then it was Nicholas, who was also good friends. We all hung out, and Nicholas Hagman. And, and so that was my first time getting traded. So I'm thinking, all right, I'll probably have a couple of days to hang out. You know, I, had, I, I just had a son pack up and move 
didn't know the how the logistics of it all. So Calgary calls me right away and says, hey, there's going to be a bird on the tarmac in five hours. And so I was like, so I have five hours to go pack my life up. I obviously had to go get my gear. So I had to go downtown, pack my gear, get everything out of there, pack my life. And basically, you know, you're saying goodbye to, uh, at some point, you, you know, your family's going to come, but you don't know. You're just kind of saying goodbye and like you're on a plane. So I had five hours to get on a plane. We flew to Calgary and uh, we got there. And so at that time, I still wasn't really like a, a name in the NHL. I think I maybe played four years, but I wasn't like a, you know, a star or anything. And so we landed in Calgary and we went out. We were going out to some, it was like some Japanese hibachi place. I, I can't think of the name right now, but it's like a chain. But anyway, we went out. We started walking down down the street, and this was the day of the trade. So, I mean, word would have just gotten out, really. And people, every single place that we went into, we go. I go into Shoppers Drug Mart, had to get some. People would recognize me, and I'm not, I don't particularly think I even have like a recognizable face or anything, but people would come up to you in Shoppers Drug Mart. And then we went out to this this uh, place for dinner and there was tables of people, like actual tables of people coming up and, and asking for autographs and stuff, which it just really blew my mind because like I don't even find out about trades that quick, let alone, you know, would recognize if someone got traded that day and happened to be sitting at the same restaurant as me. Maybe I don't even people watch enough, I don't know. But <laughs> it, was, it was surprising. Calgary was, uh, out of all the places I played, you get recognized in Calgary the most, quite frankly. So when you go to Calgary, though, you're going with, with your four buddies, Hagman, Stajan, and Jamal Mayers? Yeah. Or by yourself? Three of them, yeah. Four of us together. To, to go back to the Toronto situation for a second, I know we talked about it at you know, dinner tonight before we started recording, but the, the Vesa Toskala goal, the, the far-end bomber uh, in Long Island, do you have any memories of that? Or Yeah, yeah, I was there for that. Um, you know, what can you say? I was actually really good friends with, with Vesa too, he was one of our, one of the guys we hung out with, who actually, through a, a third party, he got traded. I think it was to Anaheim. So the same day that we all got traded to Calgary, he got traded to like Anaheim or San Jose, I think it was, and then Cal. They traded him right immediately to Calgary. So he was coming with us. So all of our tight knit group of guys, we all ended up at the same place. But yeah, we were in Long Island, um, and, and I. I can't remember the score of the game, but it, it was it was a pretty tight game, and they just sent just a very innocent, clear, and you could just see it, like he went out to play. You could just see it going from the bench anyway, and it's it's, it's all I don't know what it is, but those long clears, you're always kind of looking like, is this the one that's going to take the bounce, right? And sure enough, it took a, took a wild bounce, and he just it was. You know, your heart goes out to your goalie, right? Your heart goes out to a guy, right? Because that's all on you. Bad bounce or not, you're the one that's going to be remembered. You're the one that's in the replay. So I felt bad for him, but it, it's still funny to witness something like that and, and not <laughs> not have it happen to you. <laughs> yeah, those ones are tough. Like when, when they're bouncing like that, you're just trying to get on top of it as much as you can. I remember last year in you know Sweden, we had one game where a guy dumps the puck in from just outside the blue line on me, and it takes a bounce at the last possible second. And it, and it hits my glove, which is great, but when it, it hit my glove, I was going one way, and the guy was going the other, and he had the wide open net, and obviously that's... You know, not... Well, and you don't want to like do a full butterfly and like 
you know, you don't want to look like you're too hardcore. You want to kind of play it cool. Like, that's what Tosca is trying to kind of play it cool, right? You know, but sometimes I guess you got to go go down. <laughs> was there a, was there any reaction from him after that that, that you remember? I know you weren't on the ice for it, but no, I I can't particularly remember. He was, you know, he has a real um, yeah, he had a very calm demeanor. Like he, I never seen him snap or like break twigs or something like that. He was a very calm person. Obviously, I'm sure he was embarrassed, but he didn't lose his mind or anything. He was a very chill person. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. So you go from Toronto, Calgary, kind of shuffled around a little bit, Carolina, San Jose, and then you end up in Detroit. And you were the last D partner on record to play with with Nick Lidstrom, correct? Mm-hmm. And after that. When you, know, you finished your last season in D- Detroit, was the lockout season the second lockout year, 13, 12, 13? Uh, then what happens? Because I know, you know myself, I was very curious about this when you, you came to Motor City and we ended up sitting together in the locker room, and I know a lot of people are curious as well. well I'll just quickly go through even from, from Calgary. So Calgary, I was there, so I finished the year off there. Um, I had arbitration rights that year. They had offered me a three-year deal or a four-year deal if I, up to me, um, and and for whatever the money was at well is for for 2.5 million a year three or four years i could decide but i had arbitration rights and i just had came off like a 13 goal year and i, I had a good year and just with our knowing if i went to arbitration i'd get x amount of dollars which would have been more than than two and a half a year plus after that i would have been uh, unrestricted free agent so decided to go the arbitration route and right before the, the arbitration hearing, I, I met, we were in Toronto, I met with uh, um, uh, Daryl Sutter, and I can't remember who the assistant manager was, but anyways, we met with him in the hotel, see if we could hash something out right before before going into arbitration. So we ended up agreeing to a, a one-year, $3 million deal. And so went there for, for the season, and I think it was maybe 10 games in, 12 games in, uh, we didn't get off to a very good start, and so the ownership had told the management they got to start unloading some guys. And I was the only de- defenseman that didn't have a no trade clause, and so I got shipped out to to Carolina. Um, so now is my second trade within a couple months, and so I go down to Carolina. I'm there. My wife, who had just moved from uh, Toronto to Calgary. And then to Carolina. Now I have a, a son at the time, a real young son, and and my ex-wife was pregnant with another one. So moved all the way now across the, the continent again to Carolina. And I'm debating. I'm like, do I get settled here, or you know, because I just did two moves. But I'm like, nobody gets traded twice in a season. So I'm like. Yeah. I'll get settled. So rented a nice house and moved everything down there, got all got all squared away. And then I was there for three months and I get the phone call, hey, you're, you're, you're traded to San Jose. So now another massive move all the way across the country again. And, and my ex was, I think, eight months pregnant at the time. So we'll go to San Jose, finish the season off there. We went, that was the furthest I actually went in playoffs, went to the conference finals. We had, a, we had a really good team that year. I finished the season off well again. I had, had really good playoffs. I, I got to ask with San Jose, you got to have some great jumbo stories. Jumbo Joe. Uh, you know, I, it, was, it was a little 
a little uh, yeah, a little interesting. Like when I so I first got there, get on the ice. Uh, you know, he's a forward, obviously, and and being a defenseman, I was I was paired up with Nick Walleen, and so we go on, you know, go out there for a shift, you know, move the puck around or whatever would happen. We come off the ice, and and Jumbo would he'd be he'd get off the ice and he'd stand up and like just start screaming at the D, like well, you guys give me the puck, just screaming at guys, and I was like, what the heck, man? I'm like I'm trying. I don't want it, <laughs> and and you just holler at guys, and and then in the in the in between intermate, everyone has their own way of motivating and whatever. In the locker room, in between periods, he'd be he'd be howling like at the second line center, like, "Is your line gonna show up tonight?" Stuff like that. Was, I'm more of like a calm, you know, chill guy, but he was he was uh, he was pretty aggressive. I mean, I was only there for probably I guess the. The last two months of the season and playoffs, so at that point it's it's really serious, like playoff serious. There wasn't too much joking around stuff. So that's that's the only memories I have of of, of Joe. And then uh, Jr. was in San Jose at the same time, or no? No, he had retired by then. Okay, so he was gone. So you're done San Jose, and then you end up in a- yeah. So then, so then I finished season off there. I sat down with um, the manager. You know, your exit meetings for the year. And he said, quote unquote, he's like, you deserve to make a shitload of money. And in hindsight, I should have said, what are you thinking? Because <laughs> I probably would have taken anything to to stay there. I liked it there. I fit in there. The team was, you know, perennial contenders. Um, but anyway, so I go home that summer feeling good. My My second child was just born at the end of playoffs. And so I'm now an unrestricted free agent. So July 1st is coming up. And like I said, I had a, I had a good uh, a good season, even though I got traded twice there, it finished off pretty good. And uh, so I was expecting to, to, you know, get a couple offers and some, some decent, uh, decent things to think about. And so the, the agent I had, I, he'll remain nameless. <laughs> um, For obvious reasons. <laughs> Uh, it just, he was one of the guys that, that took care of the big guys, big name players, but if you weren't a big name guy, I, I don't even know how he handles them, but there was no communication. I'd never been an uh, unrestricted free agent, never gone to free agency, so I don't even know how it worked, and I'm, I'm not a high maintenance player, but I, I wanted some information on what we're going to do on July 1st and how it goes, and, and we really didn't talk. We had like maybe one conversation, it was like, yeah. And this is what really stuck out in my mind. I said, so when I talked to him, I said, are you, so what do you do? Like you go around, cause you obviously represent other players that are in the same position as me. How do you decide when you call, when you talk to a manager, who you're pushing, who you're like, how do, I just want to know how it worked. He's like, and then he said to me, he's like, yeah, you know, I don't actually go around calling teams on, on the player's behalf. I wait for them to call me. And it struck me. I was like, man, that's odd. I'm like, that'd be one thing if you're like a superstar, you know, where everyone wants you. But if you're not, you know, you got to sell these players, right? But anyway, so July 1st comes. I'm living in Kenora at the time. And and no offers came in. So I'm like, what the heck's going on? And uh, and then fortunately on, on the 2nd, 
Or so what happened was San Jose, San Jose didn't want me back, but they had traded for, in the summer, they had traded for Brent Burns. So they didn't need me anymore. Um, so they weren't going to resign me. So then I was going to, to free agency. And uh, so then July, July 2nd hit and uh, Detroit called. I, they, I obviously wasn't first on their list, but whoever they were looking for didn't pan out on the first so they they uh put an offer for for two-year deal x amount of money and i i had no other offers anyway but i was i was happy like, yeah was, absolutely i'll go play in detroit so come move here and probably i guess you know august and get we go to camp and the mike babcock had me paired up with lidstrom so, and obviously Detroit has lots of legends of the game too. We had probably, at that time, at least four guys who had won four Stanley Cups and, and a number of other guys who had won multiple Stanley Cups. Guy like really, well, I mean, Hall of Famers. And so you walk, you walk in the locker room, it's kind of like, what's, it's just, it's, it's a very cool feeling. You walk in there just to, to be on the same team and then for the first day of, of camp, I, I look at the roster and he's got me paired up with, with Lidstrom. I'm like, this is going to be fun. Like, wow, actually probably what's going on in my mind is like, don't screw this up. <laughs> I've had, I had kind of a, a bit of a, a history of, you know, shooting myself in the foot. So I'm like, don't screw this up, you know. And so we, 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 got, we got paired together and I'm sure anybody can play with Lidstrom. Uh, he's going to make anyone better, but we, we did, we did sync very well. And, uh, we had, we had a, we played, so we had, we did camp together and then we played uh, the season together and we played probably, we played the entire season together. I missed, I think five games. I, I smacked, I got a broken face and he missed a couple games. So we probably maybe 72 or so games we played together and we, we were tearing it up, um, like a couple of weeks ago in the season, I was leading the league in plus minus. Uh, he was right behind me, and we were, you know, every shift we're playing against Crosby, Ovechkin, these guys, and shutting them down. And not only are we shutting them down, we're, we're scoring on them, right? So we're having a tremendous year. And for, for some, for whatever, I probably never really know what happened, but my, my, Mike Babcock didn't like me. I think it was likely the fact that, that I like to party and, and have a lot of fun. And so towards the end of the season, there was, there was a little bit of friction there. And uh, at the end of the year, so we had, we had traded for a guy at the deadline um, to bolster our D for the playoffs. And we had a bunch of injuries all throughout the year. And then toward, a couple weeks to go, uh, finally, all their D were healthy, but now we have one extra, right? So we had a meeting with the D, and he said, it's like, okay, so we're going to... The one guy who was, like, one of our, our top D had been out for a couple months, so he needed to get some reps in before the postseason to get in shape. So we had a meeting, and Babcock said, we're going to rotate guys out. So I was about probably fourth on the totem pole. There was uh, Lidstrom, obviously, Cronwall, Erickson was the guy who was hurt, who needed to play, and then Brad Stewart. And so I was the next guy. So we had a bunch of guys, obviously, under me. So we'd sit one guy out, 
then another game, the next guy another game, and then the next guy another game. Then it was my turn to sit out. So I think there's there might have only been three or four games left in the season. So I sat out. And then the next game I got back in, um, I was no longer paired up with, with Nick, which was, was odd because we played the whole season together and we did really well. And anyway, so now we're all of a sudden not playing together, which was clearly, a, you know, a sign or a, you know, Babcock was sticking it to me, which, it, you know, but not only that, he was actually harming the team too because we were the best deep pair and we were doing well. And now you're right before playoffs, you're going to just throw that all away. Anyway, we start, we start playoffs and, and again, uh, we weren't playing together for the start of playoffs. So Nashville? Nashville, yeah. So the start, the first, we'd start the game, first two periods, we wouldn't play together. And then if we'd be losing by a goal or whatever, then the third period, we need to generate something. So then he'd pair us together to try to quickly make something up. And it, uh, we came up, we came up short, but so anyway, I still have one more, one, one more year in the deal, but now we have a uh, labor disagreement the next year. So we were the players were locked out. Nick decided to retire, and I moved here in August. My kids were in school at the time, so I came back. Uh, there was maybe seven or eight of us older players who who came here like for the start of the season, the timing, and we just practice and wait until the, the new collective bargaining agreement was struck. So I was skating actually in, in Troy. It's only a couple minutes down the road here. And after, this was I think about December now, I came off the ice and there was a bunch of local reporters that would always hang out and try to get some some clips from from us. And I came off the ice and this these reporters, I think there's three of them, they said, hey, did you hear that Gary Batman is take, wants to take a two week break in negotiations? with the union and I, I thought about it and I said, really? I said, honestly, I think he's an idiot. And I said, one more sentence, got showered up, went to my truck, sat in my truck for about five minutes. I'm like, you know what? That's probably going to be a pretty big story. So I went back into the rink to talk to the reporters. They're the local reporters that I know. And I said, Hey, do you guys mind not printing that? And the, the one lady, she's like, well, you said it. I'm like, no, I know I said it. I'm not denying that. And I said, I just don't want to cause any friction between, you know, the union and the players and stuff. Anyways, I didn't even know what Twitter was at the time, but she said, I already tweeted it out. So I, I didn't really care. I did think that at the time, and I said it. So I, I'm like, all right. So I went home. Uh, about a 20-minute drive home, I, I opened my laptop when I get home, and I, I Google Ian White, Gary Batman, and there was already about 18 headlines that says, Ian White calls Bettman an idiot. I was like, that's probably not gonna go over too well. So sure enough, uh, get called into the, the management's, uh, Ken Holland's office, and, and they weren't too happy, obviously. Um, and I mean, should I have said it, should I not? But anyway, so, so now I've got Gary Bettman upset at me, and owners upset at me, management, not too happy with me and Mike Babcock, the coach just doesn't like me. So finally, I think it was February 1st or 2nd, the season starts. 
and now it's contract year. We've only got maybe two months of the season or three months, whatever it ended up being, for me to prove my case to get a contract. So I was gung-ho, fired up, ready to play. First game, I, I got out there, had a really good game, got an assist. Second game, I scored a really nice goal. Right, uh, I'm like, man, this is going to be good. It'll be a good year. And then the third game, I was back-checking, and the guy, the, the forward had a step on me, and so I, I dove kind of right around the hash marks to, to try to poke check him and plowed into Jimmy Howard. And I took his skate right across my knee, like the front of his skate just kind of stabbed me in the knee and just cut me really bad. And so now, now I sat out, I was out for, um, I think it was three weeks I, I couldn't skate. So three weeks out of a, you know, eight week season or something anyway after that then i i got into uh i got obviously really depressed the whole time i was i went to the hospital or when i when that happened i went to the hospital and i used to to drink i was an alcoholic i drank a lot i'd use a lot of drugs i went to the hospital they gave me fentanyl and as soon as i got that that fentanyl it was just like i mean it was like your it's like euphoria it makes all your pain go away. Everything was just like, you don't care about anything. And I ended up getting addicted to, to fentanyl. Um, this is for the knee injury. Yeah. Uh, three weeks, I, I couldn't play. And then finally, once my, my knee was good enough to, to play, um, I uh, started practicing stuff. But by this time, Babcock, he did, I don't know if he had no plans to put me back in. And I kind of, uh, I wasn't in a good headspace at the time either. I mean, I wanted to play, but so he would, he kept scratching me and, and I kept drinking and using drugs and, and things just kind of, uh, it was 10 o'clock or we had, it was a game day at home. I lived in Birmingham, which is, it takes about 45 minutes to get down to the rink. And so it was game day. We had morning skate and I woke up. My alarm went off. I woke up uh, probably eight o'clock, and I had to be on the road by about eight thirty. And so I, every morning I wake up groggy, hungover, and if, once you're on fentanyl too, you're like super groggy. And so I push myself up on the bed like this, and I turn my alarm off. So I'm like sitting on my sitting against my headboard. I'm like, okay, I'm awake. You know, I wait till the cobwebs shake off. And I'll go to the rink. And then the next thing I know, I look at my phone, it was like 11 o'clock. And so skate, morning skates at 10.30. So I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm like, I missed practice. And of, of all the years that I've played, I never once saw a person miss a practice. Like I've seen guys, I, you rarely see people even late, let alone no show. So I'm like, oh my goodness. So I, I called the rink. There's no point, because like it says, a 45 minute drive, there's no point in even going. Call the rink. Anyways, so I missed a practice, totally. And when you call, who did you talk to? I just called the trainer, equipment guy. I'm like, is there any point in coming? And he's like, no. <laughs> so anyways, that was, that was uh, a real bad one. And then, so how, how it works too with addiction and alongside, you know, maybe not playing and whatnot, you know, you get, you get down and then you just keep drinking and doing more, try to feel happy. And we happened to be, we were in um, Calgary 
so I'm still scratch, you know, scratch all the time and still hoping to get back in the lineup, obviously. And, uh, um, I, I mean, you never know where the coach's mindset is or the day that you get back in, right? But you got to stay ready. So we're in, in um, Edmonton or Calgary, and I've got a lot of, well, one of my best friends lives there. So the day, the day we, uh, we get in the day before the game, you know, 3 o'clock or something. So me and my buddy, we go out or meet up with my friend. And we uh, we <laughs> we party, or, you know. We're up till about I don't know four or five, and I ended up because we were skating skating in the morning. I think on the road on the road you skate at eleven thirty, and so I wanted to get to sleep. It's probably five or six in the morning, so I took a bunch of sleeping pills to try to fall asleep, and I guess I took too many, and I didn't. I missed practice again to the point where. The, the trainers called the hotel to send security into my room to see like, if I was alive. And I guess the, what I, the story I heard anyway is the, the security guard was, was pulling up my, like, check for a pulse. He was, like, pulling on my leg, trying to wake me up. And he couldn't wake me up. And so he just told uh, the, the, our medical guys, like, guys, yeah, he's, he's, he's awake, but he's unresponsive. So now... Missed the second practice, totally. So now, uh, my mindset at the time, I guess you still think you might get in, but I'm sure they had written me off at that point. So finished the season up there. Uh, go back home in summer and didn't get any offers. I just kept kind of, so now I'm, I'm, I probably was always an alcoholic since I started drinking, like when I was, you know, 16, 17. Um, like in hindsight, like you drink, uh, you drink every day and, you know, whether it's smoking marijuana or doing hard drugs, you're always doing, there's always some sort of chemical in your body. And I always had, uh, access to it and I always had money to supply it. So there's just, you get, uh, and, and, uh, a problem too was that, that I was actually very successful in, in life. So, you just kept, it just became a way of life. And even uh, the last, the last full year I played in, in Detroit, uh, I tried three times to, I'm like, you know what, try playing a game where you didn't drink the night before. Like, so you're not hungover. So three times I tried, I'm like, hey. Um, and the first time I tried that, the next game was, was I played absolutely terrible. And in my mind, I'm like, well, it can't be. Obviously, alcohol is not a performance-enhancing substance. At that time, I didn't realize, you know, you got to take a couple of weeks off of, of drinking or using drugs to start feeling good again, sometimes even longer. Um, but I took, uh, so then I, I'm like, okay, well, I'll try it again, you know. So I did the second game. I didn't drink the night before the game. I played terrible. And now it was kind of really like, screwing with your mind like man like it can't be that I have to drink to play good um, so I'm like it I'll try one more time but obviously your career's on the line you can't just not play good you know you're not gonna play at all right so I did I the third game we we're playing in in Chicago I didn't go out the night before and we were on we were, I was on the ice Chicago has a crazy uh, crazy environment there one of the best places to play I, I'm on the power play. I'm I'm on the blue line. I'm dragging the puck across the line backwards, and I just like heel pick, 
and like fall down. And I, I don't know if it was, uh, it might have been Patrick Kane. Picked up the puck, went down, scored. And I'm just like, and I'm not saying that wouldn't have happened if I, if I was drinking that before. But anyway, I played a, get, a bad game again. So now I'm like, you know what, I can't, I can't risk it anymore. I just have to keep drinking and worry about what, anything else later. So, um, but anyway, then after, fast forward to, to where I just left off, um, the summer after my last season in Detroit here, hoping to get a contract somewhere. And uh, by this time, I would imagine that I have a reputation throughout the league of, of being a party animal and maybe has substance abuse issues. And likely that's the reason I kept getting traded too, looking back on it. Um, so now, now I'm really uh, depressed and have no prospects. So that summer, I spent the summer at, in, in Kenora and I had a, a very nice setup there. Just go fishing every day and, and hang out and do water sports and stuff. And I didn't, because I didn't have a contract coming up, I didn't train, I didn't do anything. And just drink and, and enjoyed life at the lake. Three weeks t- before uh, training camp opens up, Kevin Sheveldayoff calls me uh, from from the Jets and says, "Hey, do you want to come to camp?" And so I, I almost actually burst out laughing because I was like, "Man, I can't! <laughs> if I show up at camp, I haven't been on the ice in like five months. I haven't lifted a weight, and all I've been doing is drinking and partying." But at the same time, I can't say no because there's an opportunity to play for for the Jets. So I said, "Yeah." I'll come to camp, obviously. So that day I found ice, went skating. The next day, got ice, skated again, and obviously everything's stiff as as can be. So I took the third day off and then went to training camp. First day is a fitness test. And for for whatever reason, whether it's genetics or whatnot, I, I can stay in shape pretty easy. So I got through the fitness test actually pretty good. And Got on, got on the ice, and I, I, you know, the old fake it till you make it. I was actually not, not too bad. Got in the first preseason game at home. I played the most out of anyone. Played pretty good, but by this time I was like, like a full blown uh, fentanyl addict. Uh, like all day, every day. Like morning to night, you have to, you have to have fentanyl. And so they kept me around for eight days. I don't know if they knew I had a problem, but eventually they, they released me. And from, from there, everything really fell apart. I was, uh, uh, I was at Costco. So this is where, this is where the legal, my legal troubles started. Um, so I have, at the time, I had a gun license, I had a gun permit in Canada. There's different rules and regulations in the U.S. here. But I had nine guns that I bought in Canada. I got my gun permit when I played for the Leafs. Bought most of my guns when I lived in Toronto. Uh, they're all legal, registered. I kept them at my place in Kenora. Then when I played for the Red Wings here, I bought three guns off our team security guard and I ordered an air rifle BB gun on the internet. After the last season, I brought them to my cottage in Kenora. So it was 
May. So my gun permit was my birthday is June 4th. My gun permit was expiring on my birthday that year. So it was May. I was at Costco getting gas, same white Escalade as before. I had a couple jerry cans of gas in the back and because it's an SUV, it obviously stinks in there with gas. So I had the back window open. I was driving on Waverly. I know we kind of went through the store. I was driving on Waverly. And for those that don't know, this is in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. Yeah, Costco on Keniston. <laughs> so I got a couple jerry cans in the back. I'm driving. I got the back. I had black tinted out windows. I had the back window open. And so I'm in the right lane. There's two lanes. I turn left. Now I'm on Waverly. So there's a set of lights coming up about uh, a kilometer and the right lane, there's pylons up to merge people into the left lane. So there's two cars in front of me and two cars in the left lane. So the first car merges, then this car goes, another car merges, another one goes, it's my turn. So because I got the back window open, I can see clearly out the back, I did actually a double shoulder check. I don't normally drive totally by the book, but for whatever reason, um, and, and I was on the phone with my ex at the time too. So a double shoulder check, put the blinker on even, and I started leaning over and the guy that was in the left lane, he puts the gas on to not let me in. And I had a big truck and I was like, you know, screw you buddy. So I just kept pulling in anyway. He starts laying on the horn and tailing me and stuff, being a dink. And so I gave him the old Let's pull over. So as soon as the lane opened back up, I pulled over. He pulls over and behind me. And before I could get my truck in the park, he's out of his car. And so I could see in the mirror, he was a, a middle-aged, somewhat heavyset guy. And I knew I could shit kick him. But I'm not that type of guy. But I will defend my turf. So he comes up, comes up to the window. He is red in the face and, and clearly distraught. And I said, calm as day. I said, listen, I just want you to know that whatever happens from this moment on, this is all because you were being a prick and you wouldn't let me merge into the lane. I said, that's what this is all about right now. I get out of the vehicle. So we start jawing back and forth. Uh, we make our way back to his vehicle. He had a lady in there. Um, I never laid a hand on him. Uh, he said three separate threats. One, he's like, I got a gun with me. Then he said, I'm a cop. Then he said, I'm calling the cops. And after the, the third one, I said, listen, pal, I know these are all empty threats. I said, you should strap a pair on, deal with the situation like a man would. I said, when you go home later tonight, you'll thank yourself for stepping up for once in your life. And I realized this wasn't going to go anywhere. So the last thing I said to him, I said, you're lucky your wife's here right now, or I'd be smashing your face in the pavement. Go back to my truck, get my truck. And I was still actually on the phone. And so my, my ex was saying, you know, just, I was planning on driving to Pembina, North Dakota, to buy chewing tobacco. It's about an hour south of Winnipeg. And my ex was saying, well, just, you should go home and cool out, you know, relax. So I was like, I'm fine, nothing happened. And so I start, I get on the highway, I start driving, I'm, I'm just outside of Morris and the, the RCMP have the highway blockaded and the shotgun's out and I'm taken by surprise. I'm looking around because it's obviously not for me and there's no one else on the road so I have to stop and they're yelling at the bull on the bullhorn and anyways, they 
They ended up uh, arresting me in the middle of the, the 75 highway, very aggressively, quite frankly, um, kind of smashing me into the pavement whatnot. Arrest me, wouldn't tell me what's going on. They're tearing my truck apart. And uh, only after they put me in Morris jail and I talked to my attorney, did I find out what was going on? Uh, what happened was that guy on the side of the road called the cops, said I threatened his life and I had guns on me. So I didn't have guns on me, but I, I guess telling someone, you know, smash your face the pavement is considered a crime. So I got charged for uttering threats. So that was May. So now fast forward to June 4th, my birthday, my gun permit is expiring. So now because I have this uttering threats charge and, and been accused of driving around threatening people's lives and having guns on me, I have to meet with the chief firearms officer of the RCMP in order to renew my gun license to make sure I'm not going around with guns threatening people. So I sat down with her, I explained to her, it was a woman, not that that matters, uh, I sat down with her and went through the, the incident, went through my guns that I have at that time. So to have a restricted gun permit for handguns and, and certain guns, you have to have them registered at a particular address. And when I bought them in Toronto, so they're registered to my Toronto address, I had moved them to my place in Kenora. And I guess technically you're supposed to file, get a, uh, approval to do that and re-register them at that address. I never did that. Um, but anyways, at that time I had my cottage in Kenora for five, six, seven years, and I had just bought a house in Winnipeg. So I said to her, I said, all my guns are in Kenora. Is that fine? And she said, yes. And obviously it's fine. You can have them wherever you want. So now we fast forward to November. So I, I didn't end up renewing my license for whatever reason. November 30th. I'm at my house in Winnipeg. My daughter's on my lap watching TV. It was a Friday and my phone rings and it says Winnipeg police. I was like, what, what would they want? And so I answered it and it was Sergeant so-and-so. He says, we're investigating a hit and run with a white Escalade with Ontario plates from last night. And so I was thinking, you know, what was I doing last night? And I was home. So I said, well, wasn't me for sure. He's like, well, we're, we're 15 minutes away. We're going to come check for paint transfer. So, all right. A couple minutes later, he calls me back, says, okay, we're here. Come outside. As soon as I go outside, they put the bracelets on me, put me in the back of the squad car. There's about, uh, I would say 50 police cars there. They even sent the, the police helicopter there, which in the end was clearly overkill. I don't know what they're thinking or what you know so they have a search warrant for my house and sitting in the back of the police car while they while they tear my house apart and talking shop with the police officer in the, the front seat just talking hockey and whatnot and after the search warrant they came out and the, the old adage don't ever speak to policemen I should have known but anyway, so the, the cop who is doing, leading the search says, it says, well, where, comes out, it says, where are all your guns? And I, I just, I thought it was a dumb question because like, first of all, I just met with your boss and told him where they were and you probably knew where they are anyways. And 
So anyway, I just said, they're all my cottage. And because I said that, that gave them probable cause to get a search warrant for my cottage. So they take me to jail on Grant. There's like a new police department on Grant while they're getting a warrant to search my, my Kenora property. And I lived out in the sticks. And so they got a warrant, I don't know, probably 12 hours after, went straight there. And I had a gun safe there. Most of my guns were in the safe, but I had a 22 in the garage. Um, I shoot birds to eat and stuff too. So I had a 12 gauge at the door and there was a cup. So maybe three or four guns were in the safe and most of them were in the safe, but yeah, they have to be locked a certain way whatnot. And the kicker what ended up being too, is that air rifle BB gun shoot. It was a, it was a pretty crazy gun, but it was just a BB gun. Uh, it shot really fast, but our Canadian gun laws, if your BB gun shoots faster than 495 feet per second, it's considered a firearm. Because I brought it across the border and didn't declare it as a firearm and register it and all that, it, they charged me with importing guns. Um, so after they, they did the search in my cottage and got my guns there, they filed 19 charges against me for careless storage, um, importing guns that, that I had two of those charges those are the biggest ones those each one of those charges is an automatic one to three years in jail um, and half sort of the 19 charges one of the, the biggest things that really bugged me too was out of the 19 charges about half of the charges were, were strictly the guns were at the wrong address so since I had even though I met with the chief firearms officer of the RCMP and told him my guns are in Kenora, someone in the, in the police office decided they should have been registered at this house I just bought in Winnipeg. And because they weren't there, they slapped me with an extra like 10 charges for just simply guns being at the wrong address. So in all, I was looking at doing 27 years. So I just finished playing, um, playing the NHL, hoping to, you know, I was, didn't even reach my prime. I was hoping to keep playing. Next thing you know, you're in jail and looking at spending quite literally the rest of your life in prison. Um, so I went to the remand center in Winnipeg, downtown Winnipeg is, is a very traumatic experience. Um, and, and because half of the charges were in Winnipeg, the other half of the charges were in Kenora, I had to go to Kenora to deal with that part of the charges too. So I went into the Kenora, Kenora jail, which was, uh, it's a very, very rough jail. Um, and uh, the prosecutor in Kenora, her, for whatever reason, she had it out for me. She wanted, she wanted to throw the book at me and she didn't even want to give me bail. So I had to fight. I spent a couple weeks in jail. I had to fight for, for bail. Uh, fortunately, a judge agreed to, to give me bail, um, but they forced me, part of my bail conditions, they forced me to live at my parents' house in Winnipeg, or in Steinbach, when I was at the time married with kids in Winnipeg, so, and I had a police-enforced curfew, so the police come, I had to be at the house between midnight and six every night, uh, and the police would come and check, and so, this went on, and her, her the pro prosecutors 
plea bargain or plea offer was five years in a maximum security jail. I told my attorney, I said, I don't care how much it costs, how long it takes, I need zero days. I said, there's no chance I'm going back to jail. I said, I'm, if there is any inkling that's going to happen, I said, I'm out of here, I'm leaving, you know. And it took uh, two and a half, almost three years of, of being on house arrest. Uh, I had to sell everything I had. Um, wife left me. And just to pay the, the attorneys to, to stay out of jail. And obviously I couldn't travel, I couldn't play hockey or do anything at the time. So this was, I guess, from when I was 31 till maybe 30 till 33 or 31 to 34, somewhere in there. Right in the prime of my, my hockey career, I was trapped in, under, uh, under these charges. And so that, that, in essence, ruined my life. If one, the one good thing that came out of it was when I was in jail, uh, there, was, there was no access to drugs or alcohol. And so this was the first time maybe in my life where I didn't have, have access to it. So I was in jail and I'm, I'm in full withdrawal. And I'm like, what is, I didn't even know what withdrawal was. I'm like, what is going on to me? I feel terrible. And it was at that moment when I realized I had addiction issues. So if that didn't happen, I might never have realized it or it would have been pushed back. But anyways, so when I was sitting in, in custody, then I was like, man, like you need to, to get some help. So while I was on, um, uh, on bail, I made a deal with the... Uh, the government that I could go to a treatment center. So I went to uh, this place in, in British Columbia. I was there for seven or eight weeks and, and got sober. So if there's any good uh, that came out of that, it was, was giving me my sobriety back. But other than that, it, it essentially ruined my life and I'm still trying to pick up the pieces, but I have an opportunity. I've got a way different look on, on the world. And now's, now's the, the last few years has been been trying to put the pieces back together and I was coaching doing hockey schools I have a, a young son I was coaching him for five years and then uh, in March 2020 they shut everything down locked everything down did they I, I, I heard about that recently I don't know why they did that but they did <laughs> yeah. I don't know maybe somebody in the comment section can let us know that'd be great you missed that <laughs> yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't know something about a uh, a flu, a cold, I don't know. It's news. I'm still trying to catch it. But one question I did have for you. So in this whole endeavor, how much time collectively did you end up spending in jail? Uh, just a few weeks. Okay. But but everything else was house arrest. And I'm assuming there there was or maybe there wasn't any NHL offers in that time to come to camp or, or whatnot. No, no. I didn't. Well, I wasn't even pursuing it, right? I couldn't even travel or nothing. So And so you, you finished that up. You uh, get rid of the charges. You spend the house rest time. You're good to go. Fast forward to, I guess it would have been last season, you're playing hockey again in the Fed Zeno, which is why you and me are here at this table in uh, beautiful Utica Road, Detroit. Well, Fraser, technically speaking, but... Yeah, well, even even the story about, about starting to play again. Like, I had wanted to, to play over the past few years, um get in shape and, and, and see if I could still play at what level I could play at. And so I was coaching, as I mentioned. And then March 2020, they, they shut everything down, so I couldn't coach, couldn't do hockey schools, any of that stuff. I got into different trades, doing construct, construction. 
and uh, and then this it was I guess November last year I got a phone call so I couldn't at that time too I couldn't go into any restaurants I couldn't go like you're segregated from society uh, could, you know family didn't want to hang out with you you couldn't go to family gatherings couldn't go to funerals um, and so November there was this I was uh, living in the South, South Pemina. And the only there's two places where they let me go in and eat. There is this uh, this uh, miso sushi place. I think it's called miso, right across from Sobe's South Pemina. And then there's a Chinese place. I wish I could give them recognition right now. I can't think of the name. But anyways, so I would go in there every day. I go in and it's nice to be able to go in and eat somewhere. So I eat back and forth Chinese, Japanese, Chinese, Japanese. And uh, so I'm at the Chinese restaurant just crushing some black beef and black bean sauce and my phone rings and Justin Schmidt uh, it was on he was calling me on messenger and I I don't actually recall ever talking to him on the phone before we had met in Swift Current way back in the day but he said hey do you want do you want to play hockey and I said yeah absolutely so uh, I had an opportunity to go down and play in Columbus Columbus Georgia not Columbus Ohio the River Dragons yeah in the Federal Hockey League. And I hadn't even heard of the Federal Hockey League before, but I was just happy to get out of get out of Winnipeg, get out of Canada. I know life was, was fairly normal down in the southern states. Um, so I went to Winnipeg Airport to see if I could fly. Couldn't fly. I stopped at the, the, Via, the Via Rail downtown Maine there to see if, or Portage, to see if I could, uh, see if I could take a train couldn't do that so I'm like man I have this opportunity to go play hockey again and, and just break out of this this misery that has been kind of foisted upon humanity with the lockdowns and, and everything else uh, but now I can't even get there so I spent about three weeks trying to figure out a plan how to get down there and finally after uh, it was it was December 20, 20th uh, a good friend of mine who I helped, uh, well, Brent Stace, he was, uh, he ran the Aqua Pizza in Steinbeck. It was the best pizza place ever until he lost it due to um, every, all the stuff that happened. And anyway, I spent the summer working with him, try to keep his pizza place open. And so now in uh, December, he, he called me and said, "Hey, I'll give you I'll give you a ride to Minneapolis to fly down because I had heard that you could cross the the Pemina border and they weren't checking for uh, passports for medical status and those types of things that we can't discuss on YouTube these days." So we drive. So he says, I'll, "I'll give you a ride right now." So I'm like, "Okay, let's do it." So I went and pat. I didn't even know where my hockey equipment was. All I could find was my skates. Grab my skates. Uh, grabbed a suitcase and it was a blizzard out. We drove the hour to the Pemina border. We stop at the Canadian side. He goes in to see uh, what's going to happen to him when he returns. And they said he'd have to do like a two-week quarantine. Um, so he comes back and he's like, "Man, I I can't I can't do that because he's got a business run. Obviously, I mean, I don't I wouldn't do it either. But anyway, so then I went into the Canadian side to ask them if I can at least go to the American side to see if they'd even let me in because I didn't even know if I could get into the country. And they said, if, if you go to the, the U.S. Customs and they don't let you in, then you're going to have to go spend two weeks. So 
I'm sitting in my buddy's car at the Canadian Customs. So, you know, I'll just call the U.S. and see what they say. So I told them my story. And the, the U.S. Customs agent says, just walk down the highway, come in the car lane, and you'll be good to go. So I'm sitting in my buddy's car, mulling it over for about five minutes. And like I said, the snow was going sideways. I'm like, you know, am I really going to do this? Like, just walk down the highway? It's not like the southern border where everyone walks across the Rio and walks into the country and gets hooked up. This Nobody nobody crosses the northern border by foot. Um, but anyways, after five minutes, I'm like, screw it. Let's do it. So I start walking down the highway, going to the car lane. They had, uh, admit me into the country. What's the temperature at this point in time? It would, it would have been about minus 20 Celsius. It was like full-on blizzard conditions, yeah. And so I get into the country, and, and for people that don't know, uh, Pemina, North Dakota is very rural. There's no major city there where you have taxis or Uber. So I, I'm now officially in the U.S., but now I'm stuck at, at the border. And uh, the customs, they were really nice people. Uh, they were like, you're going to be, it's going to be a long night, eh? I was like, yeah, I guess. And so after trying to find out how to get a ride, I probably spent, I don't know, three or four hours there. I, I just asked them, I said, do you guys mind if I hitchhike? I said, nope. So I ended up catching a ride with, with this young guy. Um, I think he was 26. He was, his goal in life or was to drive every mile of interstate in the country. And he just happened to be driving the northern, uh, I think it was the 29 highway, the interstate. And so, and then he was turning around and going back to wherever. Caught a ride with him. Actually, his first time hitchhiking, but it had a neat, neat conversation, meeting a new guy. Uh, he drove me to Fargo. I stayed at a hotel there, played. Uh, I, was always, I was so fired up to get into the country. And it's just, a, it's like you're, you're free again. So I was all jacked up at a flight at seven in the morning to fly to Columbus. I knew I wasn't going to sleep. And the overnight guy, I don't know what hotel it was, a little motel. Uh, he, we ended up playing. He was a, a gay pagan. <laughs> Never met one before. Maybe, maybe met a gay person, but I don't know if I met a pagan. But anyway, uh, we played Uno in the lobby all night. And I was just, I was, he was interested to hear or have someone to talk to. I was interested to hear. We actually got along really good. So I stayed up all night playing Uno with this guy. Caught a flight seven or eight in the morning to to Atlanta. Got picked up and started playing uh, playing hockey again. Well, actually, well, maybe I'll end it with one one funny story. Um, so I was so I was sober for about four four or so years, and then when the lockdowns happened, like I wouldn't even I wasn't even drinking coffee. I wasn't like no chewing tobacco, nothing, super clean. And then the lockdowns happened. And since I couldn't coach and, and be around my kids, um, I got a little, you know, I got a little mis- miserable. So I'm like, oh, I'll buy a tin of tobacco. And I'm like, oh, I'll have a coffee. And, uh, and then eventually I started drinking a little bit, having some beers and started drinking. And before you know it, I was drinking every day again. And uh, then I went, Went down to Columbus. I had wanted to stop drinking before I started playing again. So I tried to stop for a couple of days, like sweating it out. And, and I just couldn't do it. So I figured, you know what, get down, get down to Columbus and then worry about quitting drinking again. And so I got down there and 
uh, so I got down there on the 21st. So I think it was the 23rd. Me and, and Justin Schmidt, we went to do uh, stand-up comedy. And I had never done stand-up comedy before. And so I had, I probably had eight or ten beers to take the edge off to get up on the stage. So I go up there at 10 o'clock, do my set, get off the stage. And, and being kind of a, a veteran alcoholic, I know when I've had too much. So I said to the guys, there's only a couple of us there. So I just got to sit down and, and, and just cool out for a bit. So I went and sat down by myself in the bar for about half an hour till everything kind of calmed over. At 11 o'clock, we went to this, this local hillbilly uh, watering hole that was about half a mile from, from the hockey house. Turns out, maybe at some other time we'll get into this story, turns out we think this might be an undercover like hillbilly tranny bar, but that's a total side story. Um, but we go there, there's three of us, I'm walking in, a local hillbilly says, hey, you ever, you ever have moonshine? I said, nope. You want some? Yep. So we go to his truck. He's got a quart jar, you know, it was clear liquid and, and it was watermelon. And uh, I took a sip and it was, it was fantastic. Like it tasted like watermelons. And I was like, oh my goodness. So I ended up actually, obviously you're just supposed to sip this stuff. But I drank about a quarter of the quart jar. And by the time I walked in the bar... I was just floored. And so being responsible, it's 1130 at the time, I told my captain, I said, hey, take me home. I'm, I need to go home. So I went home and thought, I'm like, okay, man, this is great. So I went to bed. It was 1130. I'm in bed. I'm like, no trouble. I've got to Bad things tend to follow me around. This time I dodged a bullet. Went to bed, you know, sleep it off. It was 130. I woke up, so I just moved into the house. Half the light bulbs didn't work. It was 1.30, I had to go to the bathroom. So I get up, walk down the hall, go to the bathroom. And while I'm, while I'm going to the bathroom, my phone on my bed's ringing. And it was, it was my fiance, now my wife at the time. And she was calling. So I wanted to answer the phone. So I hustle back to the bed and I trip over my suitcase and I fall face first onto the night table, smash, uh, smash myself right here. My eyes like hanging down like this, just crime scene blood like crazy. And I don't even like, we live kind of like in the redneck area. I don't, there's nothing around. And not that I would have known any, but I just moved there. I have no idea where anything is. I'm obviously kind of half conscious, one, because of the moonshine, two, because of the head trauma. And so... I'm on the phone, I answered the phone, and we talked for a couple hours, I think, and I was just gonna sleep it off and deal with the situation in the morning. And I had sent, sent my wife some pictures, and she's like, that's not going away, like you gotta deal with that. So I ended up ha having to call 911 on myself, and I had to go to the hospital, get my face sewn back together, and, uh, pretty hefty bill to get the ambulance to come out to where we were and then obviously the zippers and the eye cost me about $2,500 which I didn't have I actually still haven't paid them <laughs> but uh so then I'm like you know what it's just another thing. like you can't drink I can't drink I've got no no moderation skills all gas pedal no brakes so I decided well, I had already previously decided to stop drinking, but that was the catalyst that says, that's it, man, you're done. You're gonna... I had four good years of, of not drinking. And and so 
I ended up stopping again, and we're I guess we're almost up on a year here since uh, since I drank again. So that's awesome. Congratulations. Thanks, buddy. It's been it's been fun to to do this show. This is like by far the longest podcast I've done in two plus years. But uh, I think that the people listening will feel the same way about listening to your story that I did, and I think the team did when we had you know team lunch the other day at Ruby Tuesdays in Delaware. Uh, and I haven't told the story in the podcast, but we're having lunch at you know Ruby Tuesdays, and Whitey starts explaining the story. And within about thirty seconds, everybody stopped eating and stopped and started paying attention to the story. And it was a very captivating story. I think you did an even better job explaining it for this than at uh, Ruby Tuesdays. So um, thank you to you for for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and everything with me. I know that, that you recently started or wanted to start your own podcast. You want to talk a little bit about that before we cap off? I was saying, if anything, I might call it Waves because I find that. Uh, everything, everything is connected. Everything, we're even our cells work on frequencies. There's just waves all around us, and you throw a stone in a pond; those ripples cause more ripples. So, like we're talking right now, this podcast is going to go out into the ether, and it will cause someone to watch it, and they might tell someone else, and they might tell someone else. Someone might pick up something important from it. Someone might be entertained. Um, the other thing I always do too is if, if anyone's uh, struggling with addiction, feel free to reach out to me. I've had pretty good success with, with uh, my own as well as being able to help other people too. I know that's a, a big thing, especially in the past two years. A lot of people who have addiction problems, um, they've been exacerbated. So if anyone needs uh, help with either themselves or a family member, feel free to reach out as well. Absolutely. We go from grizzled vet with 500 NHL games to DM man of the year here in the Fed Zeno, dropping off his dishes for the night. He's part of the crew that does clean up after himself. But speaking of cleaning up, that is going to cap this podcast. I'd like to remind everybody that Sling the Biscuit drops a brand new episode every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern. It's 10 a.m. in Winnipeg, 9 a.m. in Calgary, 8 a.m. on the West Coast. That's Vancouver, San Francisco, Los Angeles. That is also 4 p.m. in Sweden, 3 in the U.K., 5 in Finland, and 11 p.m. in China and Australia. To everybody listening, thank you so much, Mr. White, Whitey. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been highly requested. I know your roommate in Columbus, Levi, is going to love listening to this. This has been fun sharing a story, and uh, I hope that it's not the last one. Hopefully we can share another one sometime in the new year. It's a pleasure, buddy. Awesome. And we'll see everybody next Sunday.